the Coptic Magical Papyri Podcast. Dear listeners, welcome to our 13th podcast episode. Today I sat down with Michael Zalman Rohrer to talk about Byzantine magic. Michael Zalman Rohrer studied classical philology at Harvard University and wrote a dissertation on late antique and medieval Greek and Latin magical texts at the University of California. Between 2016 and 2021, he worked as a research associate on the lexicon of Greek personal names at the University of Oxford. Currently, Michael Zalman Rohrer is research fellow at the Freie Universität in Berlin, where he works on the ERC project Zodiac, Ancient Astral Science in Transformation project. Within the project, he is dealing with a corpus of texts and practices related to his earlier interest in magic. Astrology is another form of easily transmissible folk knowledge with a foundation in religious thought, which allows to trace the details of its application by practitioners from different social classes. During his research, Michael Zalman Rohr has worked a lot with artifacts of manuscript cultures, inscription on stone, jewelry, amulets made of precious stone and metal leaves, books and formulas on papyri and in parchment, and paper codices. I hope you will enjoy today's podcast. Hello, Michael. Thank you very much for being here with me. Hi, Marquesa. Thanks for the invitation. Um, and my first question would be very broad, I have to say, but we usually ask it. How do you delineate the area of magic and Byzantine world in your research? Certainly. So so let me start with, with magic now, as I think uh, you and, and most of your listeners will, will know, this is one of the most... Um, contentious uh, terms in, in, in the study of, of the ancient world, and I'm unlikely to be able to contribute uh, much, much new to these uh, centuries of, of debate. Uh, for, for me, in, in the first instance, magic is a convenient shorthand for a variety of religion or a subset of, of religion, sort of uh, building on what I see as a, as a growing consensus that magic and religion are really inseparable um that of course there's a there's a, a a related question of how do you define um religion uh for me maybe we could say it's it's very broadly dealing with as 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 mortals dealing with the supernatural in some systematized way and then i i how to say make things a little bit easier for myself in terms of, of definition by focusing on a subset of of magic um, and that is a specific type of text um, what i would define as incantations these were the the topic of my phd research and have been my focus ever since now that requires some some words of definition too so for for me incantations would be speech acts or related to those inscribed versions of speech acts uh, in an elevated diction, so somehow set apart from everyday speech, and then aimed at producing direct results for the benefit of a user, so healing, protection, personal advancement, though sometimes at the adva- at the expense of, of, of other people. To borrow from speech act theory, a, a way of doing things with words, 
but specific words and specific things and and that's that's where it intersects with 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 magic um, but also a kind of poetry as the etymology of the name uh, implies so some of them in a survival from the classical world are in meter in verse um, sometimes updated for byzantium with more contemporary meters but more broadly um, other kinds of stylistic elevation of the language, and that's where my personal interest in these sorts of texts lies, seeing them as a kind of poetry broadly defined. The incantations share some readily recognizable features that help pick them out. Um, so in, in the Christian context, and we'll return to what that means in, in, in the, the sense of the Byzantine world, in a Christian context, these distinguish incantations from related techniques that with which they also travel so chiefly prayer and exorcism or adjuration of, of demons and uh, personified illnesses and that sort of thing along two major lines so first of all by a sort of directness in incantations so commanding acclaiming and expecting to produce results through words versus in prayer in particular, asking some supernatural power for mediation or in an exorcism, commanding, yes, but in the name of, of a higher power. And then that directness for me extends to techniques like application of bits of scripture, so a sacred text that's somehow analogous to a desired outcome, incantations going to applying this directly. So, for example, the image of a flourishing tree in Psalm 1, which can be inscribed directly to benefit one's own fruit trees, or the image of the thirsty, desirous deer in Psalm 41 to get the affection of one of someone one wants as a, as a love object. Contrast that with prayer, so reminding God or a saint of some past commitment or positive example, uh, if you like, through citation of scripture. And then second, um, distinguishing incantation from prayer and exorcism by the use of metaphor and, and imagery. So a few examples, um, if one has an ant problem, the ants one wants to get rid of, to get to leave are addressed as if they were generals of armies with whom one is going to negotiate in a sort of mix of threats and enticements or a fever that one wants to heal um, might be presented as an opponent in a court of law who fails to show up for a trial date or a child in a difficult birth um, might be addressed as the biblical Lazarus, whom the user in the person of Christ is calling to come out, Lazarus, come out. Uh, or insects might be warned to keep away from your grain because one acclaims that the grain is the body of Christ. Or the insects might be threatened with the arrival of a particular angel, one who's in charge of sparrows, the sparrows are going to eat up the insects if they don't take this opportunity to get out to safety. And all of this for me tends to go well past the sort of some poetic license that even a prayer or a liturgical exorcism might uh, take for itself.
Now, within the tradition of these incantations, there are also terms corresponding to incantations. So the formularies or recipes uh, for using them actually use uh, words like epode, goetea to, to describe them. But this is then complicated, on the other hand, by a mixture of those terms with ones for prayer or exorcism and so on. And sometimes the same text at different stages in the transmission of different redactions of the same text or even the same recipe may use a mix of, of all of those. Now, if we're interested in a distinction from religion, we can think perhaps about prohibitions and also piety to things in which religions tend to, to interest themselves. So going back to the example of, of an ant problem, uh, there, there, are, there are various things one can imagine uh, doing in, in response to that. So one could change one's own behavior, put up physical obstacles to the ants or, or move oneself away from them. But one could also use technological means like poison. One could turn to religion. One could pray to God or to a saint for help. But one could also use more direct ritual means, either physical which would have something to do with a relation of sympathy or antipathy between some substance that one would use and the ants, or ritual means that are verbal, that is, one could command or encourage the ants to leave directly. Now, Christianity, as it might commonly be perceived from outside or prescribed by an ecclesiastical hierarchy, would heavily favor some answers to that question and exclude others, and then I'll leave it to uh, to the listeners to decide which ones might be which. But magic, on the other hand, if it is a belief system, or whatever belief system would include it or allow it within itself, would not, for me, would not make that prescriptive exclusionary claim, but rather sort of situate itself as part of a set of techniques and indeed incantations themselves often are prescribed in conjunction with the so-called natural remedies, uh, to, to use their internal term, physica. So that is, they accompany the gathering process, the process of gathering, the preparation, or the administration of something like a medicinal herb or a compound drug. And in turn, incantation, especially in Byzantium, makes use of Christianity uh, and or Judaism. That, that is to say there, there is significant uh, Jewish presence in Byzantium. And that's at every turn, really such that incantation is inconceivable without Christianity, whatever some Christians may, may think of the techniques. And that extends to the involvement of priests, aspects of the liturgy, cult of the saints, characters from the Bible in the incantations themselves, uh, including characters who actually prescribe incantations in their own right, uh, which take us outside of scripture or even outside of hagiography into a contemporary and quite lively myth-making process. So another example to help with in a case of a difficult birth, one might recite an incantation with a narrative in which Christ was out walking about with his disciples or apostles. They hear the cries of a woman in labor pains. 
and one or more of the disciples is sent by Christ to help out, uh, but armed with an incantation commanding the child to come out quickly or so, uh, which can go through various metaphorical and analogical elaborations of, of language. But I'd also note that the incantation texts themselves often define themselves against magic in, in, in significant ways. That is, some ritual texts I'd an analyze as incantations, in fact, seek to counteract magic. So, so another example, uh, a long narrative incantation in which the apostles of Christ are said to encounter and combat a group of witches who live far away beside the sea and claim to perform all sorts of magical acts. That is before the apostles accost them and counteract them and in fact make them um, annul their own magical acts. And I think we should take that opposition seriously uh, and more broadly consider that at least some of those involved in the tradition of the texts that we analyze as magical would have vigorously objected to that to that classification. And so too, in the sense that the Byzantine material and I suppose the Coptic as well is part of a Christian ritual tradition that's still alive today. And, and, and therefore we ought to take care in, 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 in respecting the way that those who might now engage with practices that are somewhat, in some way comparable to, to the ones that we analyze would, would think of them. For myself, I, I see establishing a robust corpus of texts as, as, a, as a first step, as, as the most important first step, and that's where I tend to concentrate my efforts. And then just a, a final word on, on, on magic. Another reason that I like to maintain uh, the, the term as a shorthand is as, a, as to take advantage of an opportunity for interdisciplinary engagement and, and, and among among the reasons that that I'm so pleased to be able to, to, to speak with you in this in this program um, that on the Byzantine side we have as I see it some seriously neglected texts however we define magic there is serious study of it going on in the ancient world uh, increasingly in the medieval world too so this shared term is is, is, a, is a good opportunity um, to bring scholars working on all of those matters uh, together. So, so much, I think, there for, for, for defining uh, magic and, and incantations as a, as a subset thereof. Uh, now, the Byzantine world, um, also, uh, also um, to some extent, a contentious uh, or a contended uh, term. Fundamentally, it should denote a civilization or more broadly a cultural sphere that's centered somehow on Byzantium, uh, on the city of, of Byzantium. But its conception has evolved in, in modern scholarship. So at the beginning of Byzantine studies as an academic discipline in, in Germany in the 1890s, the definition was taken coinciding with the position of, of Byzantium as, as political capital of a, of a Christian empire from the foundation of the city by Constantine in the fourth century to its capture by the Ottomans in the 15th century. So on this older definition, a good amount of the Greek magical papyri of the PGM and similar 
and even of Coptic magical papyri would in fact fall under Byzantium. But this definition has been problematized with the rise of late antiquity as object of disciplinary study in its own right. So the recognition that there were fundamental changes, say, after the reign of Justinian and or the rise of Islam, which, among other things, cut off Egypt for all intents and purposes from what most Byzantinists would recognize as Byzantium. Now, in my own dissertation, I took this broader view later in a, in a revised version that I'm still at work on. I follow the more narrow one. Uh, but mostly from considerations of a manageable corpus, uh, I still think there's much to be gained by considering uh, particularly late antiquity together with the later, later material in um, questions of, of magic and religion. But the question is also important for the end point. So beyond this traditional boundary of, of 1453, it's now increasingly recognized that a Byzantine culture continues. Among other things, manuscripts continue to be read and copied. Uh, and for magic, there are important parallels in uh, later texts. Here, too, one can still say that a Byzantine culture is, if you like, being participated in under the Ottoman Empire, the successor uh, to Byzantium. And related to that, finally, there's a there's a language question uh, that, that that I'd like to um, like to address as as well. So I, I focus in particular on Greek, um, starting in late antiquity with the the, the Koine, and then going into uh, medieval, specifically medieval Greek, and then even into uh, the the Demotic uh, Greek that 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 arises already in the medieval period and 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 uh, flourishes thereafter. But there are other important languages for understanding Byzantium as a whole, um, and, 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 and that, that also should be taken into account in the study of magic. So these include Hebrew, Arabic, Turkish, Slavic languages, Latin, and even Western European vernaculars. Most relevant to my work on magic so far have been Hebrew Latin and a form of Italian in Greek transliteration, but future work by specialists in those languages might turn up, I think, more Slavic and Turkish. And then there are also full standing texts in those other languages that are relevant to magic, most significantly uh, so far being Hebrew. So, so, so there, there, there I'll draw the, the, the Byzantine question uh, to an end. Thank you very much for your answers. Um, I just have one uh, question to what you said, and uh, that is these texts that are neglected um, that you mentioned. Which texts are these? Let me describe a bit the situation uh, that I found when I when I started the, the dissertation project. Um, there there were really really not very many texts that had that had that had been published uh, yet from that, that that could be called Byzantine magic. Uh, so, so you had, um, yes, a, a few a publications mostly from the early part of the 20th century or the late uh, 19th century, and no serviceable thematic collection on magic. And it, and it was to, to the point that um, in 
framing the dissertation project, my concern was was not having enough material to actually to write a dissertation. And, and, and in, in the end, I, I, I found myself with the opposite problem that I had far too much material and I'm still uh, coping, grappling with um, put, putting it all together in, 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 a, in a form that, that might be useful for, uh, for, for, others, for others to study it. Essentially, essentially, we have huge amounts of um, unpublished material still in, in manuscript that is interspersed with texts of other kinds. So um, medical miscellanies, uh, one can find incantations and related texts um, through, throughout the pages, throughout the pages of those. And so it had, it had really been, it had been the case that those manuscripts themselves, even the medical texts, um, medicine being somewhat more valorized object of study within within Byzantine studies and elsewhere, even the medical texts hadn't been properly studied uh, to say nothing of the magical texts that might be found uh, within them. And the same might be said for, for another main uh, genre of, of manuscript that, that yields uh, the, the relevant texts, that is prayer, the so-called prayer books, but when, once one starts looking into them, uh, they prove to contain maybe more diverse um, diverse texts, including ones that, that I would draw into this question of, of magic and incantations. So there is still plenty to do. So as our listeners are, of course, mostly familiar with the Greek magical texts and with the Coptic magical texts, um, can you present some of the most important material witnesses to magic in the Byzantine world? So are these um, applied texts, are these formularies, are these some, some other objects? Certainly. So they are in the vast majority formularies. So, so I'll start with some words on the formularies and then come back around to uh, some, some of the other types. Uh, so, so formularies, that is um, collections of recipes or instructions which will be found in um, bound codices on parchment or paper. Now, in some ways, the wording of the formularies themselves shows much that students of the PGM and Coptic magical text uh, that you mentioned might recognize. What would probably be the most striking difference um, is in the aspects of context and extent of these formularies. So now we're dealing under Byzantium with entire codices, which can run up to hundreds of folia in their full extent. Within those, the medical codices that, uh, that, I, that I mentioned are often anchored by copies of the classical medical authors like Galen and the Hippocratic Corpus. But then these are augmented with anonymous collections of medical recipes in which the magical material may be um, interspersed with pharmacology, for, for example. Although a few canonical medical authors in Byzantium did include incantations or comparable texts, authors like Aetius of Amida and Alexander of Tralles, the richest source is really these anonymous masses of recipes that are that fill out the, the, the medical miscellanies, which in my opinion also give some of the best specimens of the art of incantations. 
and I thought I might read a particular favorite in which one Saint Sideros, his Greek name, or Saint Iron, seems to have been invented for the purpose of starring in a sort of narrative incantation as a suitably ironclad defender against a skin disease. So the text runs, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Saint Sideros was born iron, was swaddled in iron, a hot iron bath they gave him in an iron vessel, in iron cloths they wrapped him, in an iron garment they dressed him, with an iron belt they girded him, as iron he was reared, an iron axe he took, an iron road he made, to an iron mountain he ascended, iron trees he cut, an iron sheepfold he made, and there penned up the seventy-two causes of the pig neck and the glowing one in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, another important source, which I which I touched on um, a bit earlier, are these prayer books or eukologia in their Greek name, codices which contain some shared elements to incantations, but generally subsumed within longer prayers and exorcisms. So that's the that's the great majority of, of the sources, but we do have a few applied texts on gems and medallion amulets. And to me, these are among the most interesting because the tradition intersects in various ways with written formularies in the Byzantine period, but also the earlier PGM and some metal amulets from late antiquity, and even with beliefs reflected in classical natural philosophy, as for example, in, mentioned in Plato. And this is a series of amulets treating hysteria or the allegedly wandering female womb by comparing its disruptive behavior to the behavior of animals and then corresponding to that, ordering it to, to settle down. So interestingly, these amulets were also produced for male patients in, in Byzantium apparently the result of a phonological shift in the Greek language such that the word for womb, hysteria, from which hysteria derives, this word was later pronounced hystera, and then this became reanalyzed as a more general pathology, including by a similarity to the word for stomach, gastera or gastera, and the word for star, astera, and that last one in conjunction with the tradition of astrological medicine in particular. Now, the relatively short space that one had on these uh, gems or medallion amulets makes the fuller context that we get from the study of the formularies and codices especially appealing. So here, another example, I'll just read an extract from a lengthy text which is framed as an exorcism, a ritual text to be written on papyrus and then inserted in an amulet carrying case, following a recipe among the works of Aetius of Amida. We have some surviving examples of these tubes, but nothing comparable for the papyrus, which can't match the durability of the gem and medallion amulets. 
So here the womb is ordered, do not toss like the water of the sea, nor be carried about like a violent wind. Do not roar like a lioness, do not bellow like a bull, do not bark like a dog, do not lust like a sow after the boar, do not howl like a wolf, do not run like a deer, do not frolic like a kid, but lie down like a lamb. Do not slither like a serpent, do not puff up like an asp, do not enwrap like a python, but rest in the place where you were established. And then we should reckon with many more applied texts uh, if late antiquity is any indication, not to mention what's prescribed in the formularies themselves. They speak many times of a ritual text that's supposed to be written down. It's just that we lack the favorable conditions of Egypt to preserve them. And indeed, the formularies speak of various perishable materials in addition to traditional writing substrates like paper, uh, also things like plant, uh, plant leaves or writing directly with ink or even blood in the case of um, incantations to stop bleeding, writing directly with the blood on the body of, of the patient, for example. You have also recently contributed to a volume that presented the so-called Hay Manuscripts, which are kept in the British Museum. Um, would you please present for us the archive and its significance? So what kind of text do we find in the archive? Sure. So, so, so this um, this volume that that you mentioned is is the is is one of, one of the results of a project led by Elizabeth O'Connell, a curator at the British Museum, who is responsible, among many other things, for the care of these manuscripts in question, uh, which began officially in 2016, but was something she had in mind ever since encountering these manuscripts in her own dissertation research. So in some ways, the most important result of that project was a funded effort to have the manuscripts conserved and, and stabilized, as well as extensively imaged, the results of which can be seen uh, publicly available on the museum's online catalog. And I'd encourage um, those who are interested to, to take, take a look at that. There was, of course, also the volume uh, that, that you mentioned, which appeared earlier this year under the title, The Hay Archive of Coptic Spells on Leather a multidisciplinary approach to the materiality of magical practice. And true to that title, Elizabeth has coordinated contributions from colleagues on the conservation of the manuscripts themselves, on their imaging, on materials science, and on the history of the provenance of, of the manuscripts. So my, my focus with, within that was on re-editing the Coptic texts, and also attempting to contextualize them in the history of magic in Egypt and among texts written in Coptic in particular. So these texts are seven in total. Uh, the so-called Hay manuscripts called after their collector, the Scottish antiquarian Robert Hay, who acquired them in Egypt sometime between 1824 and 1834. Then the British Museum purchased them from his son, Robert James Alexander Hay, in 1868, but they weren't published until the 1930s and were overdue for closer study uh, ever, ever since then. 
Now, we don't know for sure that they were an ancient archive um, that is deliberately kept together in antiquity, but many factors speak in favor of it, um, and, and so, so we've taken it up uh, for, for, for our volume. So some of these some of these factors that that speak in favor of an archive there's the there's there, there's there's a relatively unusual format for for the manuscripts so we have these seven formularies which are all on leather and they're in the shape of tall narrow sheets most of them written on both sides all of that relatively rare in, in Coptic magic there's also some shared textual and figural elements uh, that that run across individual manuscripts, um, which are in their turn rather rare or even unattested outside of this assemblage. And then there are also, uh, the, 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 there's also the accession to the museum in 1868, the accession numbers of the manuscripts, and the fact that later research recognized fragments of some of the manuscripts detached and stuck to others. All that suggests that they came in together, even sort of wrapped up in one convolute. Now, on the other hand, close analysis of the handwriting and of the linguistic features of the manuscripts and some dating that colleagues uh, carried out on them via radiocarbon analysis suggests an assemblage that was built up over as much as a century and of, and of text that, whose copying was owed to, to multiple hands. Now the texts are all formularies with the exception of one that could be an archival copy of a finished product or even an applied text. This is an amulet against the evil eye. The formularies for their part prescribe ritual text, both spoken and written, as well as figural drawings and magical signs, all of that for a broad range of aims. So healing, protection, success in business, and also more aggressive aims, cursing enemies, supplanting rivals, and the so-called love or erotic magic, really, in, at least in this case, the compulsion of lust in, in women on behalf of men with the assistance of demonic powers. The largest of the formularies, which, which we designate as Hay 1, is some two-thirds of a meter high and written on both sides with a total of 26 ritual recipes. It's also the most diverse, including a bit of each of the um, categories of aims that I've mentioned so far, plus some longer invocations for the general attention of angelic powers and their help in divination, apparently using a bowl of, of water to um, produce apparitions uh, within the bowl. Other manuscripts in the collection are more focused, um, as for example, on commercial concerns or on love magic again. One of the interests of the assemblage is as providing a sort of cross-section of Coptic magic with the strong suggestion of its being the working collection of a one or a group of practitioners, though we know essentially nothing about them personally, other than their activities probably in the area of Egyptian Thebes and probably in the 8th or 9th centuries CE. There's also some chronological interest here that 
on this new, somewhat later dating, we're at a transitional point between late antiquity and the medieval world. We're witnessing a development of a distinctive Christian magic that is incorporating some traditional motifs, such as a narrative of Horus and his scorpion wife. But these are also circumscribed within Christianity. And there's the addition of some new, specifically Christian-associated features, like the application of the cult of saints and the use of Christian scripture or Judeo-Christian scripture as amuletic text. And there's the fact that, at least so far, all of this seems to be holding out, if you like, against influence from the Islamic tradition, which will already have had um, at least a century or so to uh, two or three centuries uh, to begin to exert itself uh, in, in Egypt. You have mentioned that uh, one of the reasons of the project was to uh, conserve the manuscripts. Um, so can you say in what conditions the manuscripts were and which steps did you take to publish them? So can you maybe present a little bit the technologies that, that you have worked with and how were you able to improve the older editions using these technologies? Yes, well, un unfortunately, to start with the condition, unfortunately, the condition is, is of the manuscripts is poor, but fortunately, it's now more stable than 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 it's probably uh, ever been since 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 they entered uh, the museum. So so the surface of the leather has has darkened over time, which has made it difficult to see the dark colored ink against it. The manuscripts had also been mounted in a way in, in modern times in a way that is suitable for papyri, but not so for leather that is sandwiched between two sheets of glass and anchored to the glass with some adhesive. Now, as temperature and, and humidity change, the ancient leather, which in a sense is still alive, changes its shape, but encounters resistance from the mounting and so starts to tear and crack and, and damage from that had been building to a critical point over the years. So it was there that the intervention of the museum's conservators led by Barbara Wills was especially important. And now as a, as a result of the, of the project, the manuscripts are mounted still in glass, but in a more sophisticated way that allows them to expand and contract without this distress. You mentioned technology. Some technological help was already available to earlier editors who worked on the text. A simple form of the multispectral imaging that my colleagues were able to apply as part of our project. So um, Angelica's crop and Walter Crum, more 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 Crum than um, than than crop, were able to take advantage. And and indeed, Crum writes with some excitement about this were able to take advantage of an early application of infrared photography in, in, in their editions. But this was carried out more systematically at a higher resolution and with multiple wavelengths of light, in, in, in the end, finding some wavelengths more suitable to resolving the text in particular to the ones that, that were used uh, back in the 1930s to maximize what could be read from these otherwise obscured uh, surfaces of the leather. 
And indeed, from that, a good number of new readings were possible. But there was also some help from an unexpected quarter, that is some archival photographs and notes based on them among the papers of this great optologist, Walter Crumb, which are now kept in the Sackler Library and the Griffith Archive at Oxford. And these, in some cases, reflected indeed a better condition of the manuscripts than they had gotten to when, when we began our work. And I also benefited from the expertise of colleagues in conservation who paid close attention to the surface of the manuscripts, the contours, the patterns of cracking, even the hair follicles in the surface of the leather. And together we were able to establish some new joins among fragments of the manuscripts. I won't pretend to speak with any authority on the other scientific methods that were applied by my colleagues to better understand the, if you like, the pre-manuscript life of the leather, but these are well summarized in the book for those, those who are interested. And they included, the results included identifying what type of animal and even where on the body of that animal the sheets may have been taken from and what that further suggests about conditions of production of the manuscripts. And finally, some, some improvements came simply from a fresh look at the texts and more substantially from the identification of parallels, the sort of work that was hard to do in the 1930s when not so many Coptic magical texts had been published and which in the interim has been rendered to some extent both easier, so we've had um, the benefit of decades of further research and publication, but also harder as at least when we started the project, there wasn't a comprehensive corpus of editions of Coptic magical papyri. So it's, 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 it's a pleasure to, to see that this work will be made um, much easier in the future by, by what you and your colleagues are doing with, with Kiprianos. Yes, so you're talking about the importance of parallels. And um, my question is, um, how do they help us understand the transmission of these traditions? So why is it so important to have these parallels? And uh, can you mention some of these? Yes, yeah, so, so I'll take a couple of examples. These will bring us over to the darker side of the worldview of the practitioners who may have been behind these manuscripts, but I think that they're the most interesting. So the, the formulary that is edited as Hay number two in our book is devoted to a single ritual recipe to fill a woman with lust for a man with the help of a demonic power. The invocation for doing this is complex and includes an imagined dialogue with the demonic power, including a sort of diabolical bargain that's struck to get its help, and a simile for the desired effect. Somewhat surprisingly, a simile to what the angel Gabriel did to Joseph to make him take Mary as his wife. And then further on, a damaged and obscure section is the one that benefited from imaging to yield a new reading that held the key to understanding another narrative analogy. The scenario of, of use of this ritual is supposed to unfold as in an apocryphal episode in which the chief demon Mastema, who's known from biblical apocrypha, 
collected some of his own sweat in a bowl and used this to poison the waters of paradise to instill lust in Eve. So a sort of origin story for lust itself. And um, here in particular is where the parallel comes in, adapting on the basis of the of, of, of the new reading, we can we can see the ad adaptation of specific phrasing from an apocryphal Christian text known as the gospel or questions of Bartholomew. So, so here a place where new reading facilitated by technology allows the identification of a parallel which provides the background for something that's quite clipped and, and elusive in the state of the Coptic text, even, even when one has, if you like, the whole line read, one needs this background to understand uh, what, the, what to what the illusion is. Then as, as a second example, I might give more of the so-called love magic um, involving a reflection, which, which I've already mentioned briefly, or a reflection of a traditional Egyptian magical motif, but at a surprisingly late date. So here embedded in one of the longer invocations in the largest of the manuscripts, Hay number one, for the general attention of angelic powers, we find a fragment of what must once have belonged to an invocation to instill a similar lust in a female target. Here we have a first person speaking voice as had long been recognized, making some claims that recalled those of the Egyptian god Horus in an episode of his unrequited love for a beautiful woman, reflected already in Coptic magic, and related in turn to some myths about his marriage to a scorpion. So here this voice says, I found a beautiful woman, red, dark-eyed, sitting on a lofty throne. And then the, the, the speaker proceeds to invoke supernatural assistance with clear influence from later Judeo-Christian tradition as an analog for what the original love magic would have aimed to achieve. But in one of the damaged line ends of the Hay manuscript, in fact, Lay concealed the name of Horus himself, who is therefore the speaker of these lines the model for the user of the procedure, and a testament to the longevity of this motif, even if it's been subsumed nearly to the point of being unrecognizable in this form. So again, a sort of a, con a conjunction of um, a new reading confirming something that had already been suspected, um, that, that this is an application of, of this mythological motif of Horus, but uh, we can we can firm up that identification and see, in fact, uh, the the definite presence still in in very well in in, in, str in strong terms. Hor Horus is still very much present, even even if um, other aspects of this motif have been reimagined in a Judeo-Christian context. Horus can still speak uh, in in the first person under his original name. So moving away from love magic now, um, you worked a lot on healing texts from the Byzantine world. And can you explain how this helps you understand the healing traditions in the earlier Greco-Roman or in the Coptic texts? 
Certainly, I'm happy happy to move happy to move away from uh, from 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 love magic. Yes, uh, I think the most the most significant conclusion for me has been that the study of healing traditions should take account of healing and medicine in all its forms as far as possible, including ritual, of course, but taking account also of pharmacology of more learned traditions of therapeutics, regimen, surgery, and also astral medicine and recommendations based on related branches of divination. In some ways, this is easier to do or harder to avoid having to do in the Byzantine world because, as I've mentioned, the material is so dependent on medical codices, which are also extensive and manifold and can start to give you a sense of the full arsenal, the, the multiplicity of approaches at the disposal of whatever practicing healer, physician, hospital may have held uh, this codex. One case that has interested me recently is the application of medical terminology from the learned, the scientific tradition in magical texts. So the reaction of intellectuals, including medical authors, to magic have been much discussed. What I think deserves better study is how the medical author's work in particular was digested and put to use in the diagnoses underlying the application of textual amulets. And this is on view, for example, in the precision used to define the kinds of epileptic seizures and bouts of periodically recurring fever that textual amulets on metal and papyrus respectively aim to cure, which can't be fully understood without equal attention to context in magic and in medicine. And then more practically, there's the opportunity to harness the greater quantity of Byzantine material to match applied texts from the archaeological record with formularies from the later record that can tell us about the function of the applied text. For example, a group of inscribed ancient gems whose texts reference the mythical thirst of Tantalus and also in some cases command him to drink blood. But what blood and what was this supposed to accomplish? had had remained unclear there there's no rubric in the uh, in the inscribed gems uh, to tell us that but versions of the formulary underlying this motif can now be recognized in several greek witnesses from the medieval tradition all of which apply it to controlling nosebleeds such that that aim deserves serious consideration as the function of these gems too if not if not the only one we also knew of two papyrus amulets from late antiquity with an enigmatic text referring to a legal case between a first person speaker and a headless opponent. Now, in one case, you have a headless opponent. In another case, you have a headless dog. In fact, in both cases, the opponent has failed to show up for the court date. We have several versions of formularies for a similar motif in the medieval tradition, which allow us to identify all of them as targeting periodic fever, probably 
related to malaria, analogized as an unpunctual adversary. And then in turn, the headlessness in particular, in view of a link between these medieval witnesses and the cult of St. John the Baptist, probably has to be explained in turn through a belief in the origin of fever and of demons that cause fever in a punishment against King Herod from, from, from the Gospels and his family for the beheading of the, the, of the holy man. The last question would be, a lot of your work um, deals with questions of transmission, as, um, as you have presented. How do you approach the transmission between the Greco-Roman, Coptic and Byzantine traditions? Sure. So, so I started off as, as, as mostly interested in transmission within Byzantine, within the Byzantine tradition and into the Byzantine tradition from late antiquity, which relies in turn on the Greco-Roman tradition, if, if I can say it that way. And Coptic, and the same could be said, mutatis mutandis for, for, for Syriac in, in, in my work, these first became interesting to me as, as a parallel to that same process, and also as showing different conditions For example, the, the relative position of medicine within those traditions, the levels of secular learning in the societies in question, such that these different conditions might reveal some underlying dynamics about the transmission and the societal context. But I've also become increasingly interested in what I see as growing evidence of indirect indications there to be uncovered of shared ancestors for these disparate traditions in antiquity or late antiquity that don't otherwise survive. So that is, while it remains possible to have some direct transmission between, say, medieval Greek and medieval Coptic, or even through an intermediary like medieval Hebrew, commonalities between the really widely separated branches of this Christian tradition combined with relatively little evidence of recent translation in the texts can, I think, with due caution, allow us to begin to reconstruct some shared ancestor for them. And I'll admit that this is, this is speculative, but it, it's speculation in which I think it's worth uh, engaging with due caution, a shared ancestor at a time when the regions in question participated in a, in particular, in a Greek inflected magical koine, as it's, as it's been analyzed in, in, in recent work. So I can give an example of a Greek recipe to treat rabies in a 14th century medical miscellany, a text which on the basis only of its of its Greek form, puzzled me for, for, for some time. So we have a ritual speech in the form of a dialogue with two parts. Good day to you, good day to you, good day to you. May your day be good. Where are you going? And the other part is supposed to answer, I am going to St. Tarpon. What do you want there? The rabid dog has gotten hold of me 
and I'm going to be encanted. And what are you carrying? I am carrying a candle, cheese, and incense. Now, the three items that are listed in, in, in the last part of this dialogue correspond to the closing directions of this ritual in which the cheese and some bread are subjected to further ritual actions, then fed to the patient, and the incense and the candle are offered for him in the church. So far, so good. But who is this Saint Tarpon, and why should anyone go to him uh, in particular to do with, with rabies? The reason eventually became clear to me when I came across, quite by accident, a Christian Arabic text from Egypt which was described in Walter, the work of Walter Crumb, once again, described by him in the catalog of the Coptic manuscripts in the John Rylands Library in Manchester. This Christian Arabic text bears the title, The Ritual of the Service of Abu Tarabo, For Him Whom a Rabid Dog Has Bitten. And the text under that title includes a narrative of how this Tarabo, martyred under Constantine, had encountered a wild, uh, a, 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 a rabid dog, rather, which he struck dead with the assistance of the Archangel Michael. Then later, the only son of a widow is bitten by another rabid dog and then sent by his mother to Tarabo for healing with a ritually appropriate gift, a gift of seven loaves of bread seven wheels of cheese, seven bunches of grapes, and some olive oil and wine, all wrapped in a, in a nice white cloth. The saint then summons seven children and performs a healing ritual reminiscent of the present narrative, the, the, the Greek one, including ritual dialogue about how the affliction came about, in which the children bark like dogs and bite at the bread. So much in, in the details has diverged over the centuries, but to me, the most likely explanation for the commonalities is a shared ancestor in the application of legend and cult around a Saint Tharapone, which has had a reflex Tarpone in the late Greek text and Tarabo in the Arabic one, a saint whose very name suggests a healing function, Therapeuo, to to heal among the meanings of that verb in Greek. A common ancestor in the cult of that saint in late, in late antiquity, which has then been refracted in these two um, relatively late witnesses. And then finally, I'd, I'd like to acknowledge that in some ways, transmission may be a disappointingly impersonal term. So texts are transmitted, people transmit them, but in stopping there uh, with, with those terms, one isn't looking at what those people are doing to the texts, um, which, could which, which could include practicing them, actively collecting them, redacting them, modifying them, recombining them, augmenting them, sharing them among, among colleagues. So some ways that future work might get back towards uh, these, these people would be one looking at looking at other sources in conjunction with the the, the magical texts, 
Those might include historiography, hagiography, and even court records, which we have from the Byzantine period, court records involving accusations of magical practice, which together can give some sense of social context. Of course, these texts have agendas of their own, and they have to be used carefully and, and holistically. Um, but together they can complement the primary sources, that is the first-hand documents of magical practice. Then also combined work with disciplines of anthropology and folklore studies, which has already been, been, been done for ancient magic, but could be brought to bear more with all due caution on the medieval tradition. To in some in some to some extent for folklore studies, we indeed have um, records of the performance of incantations and even the text of those incantations for um, modern Greece, in which there are some very interesting parallels to the older material. But more broadly, uh, theoretical approaches to um, the accompanying context in in, in which those performances uh, were happening. And then finally, of course, as much philological precision as possible in the study of the manuscripts, as I think is being done for, for Coptic in Kiprianos, is, is important to, to press them for as much as they can reveal about personal traits, if you like, um, even if the people remain anonymous, but, but some uh, sense of them um, can be revealed in, around, uh, behind the, the text, so to speak. So, Michael, thank you very much for coming to the podcast and especially for presenting to us all these um, little incantations and, and texts. And good luck with your future research. Thanks very much, Marketa. It, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. For more information on our um, Coptic Magical Papyri project, please visit our website on www.coptic-magic.phil, that is P-H-I-L dot uni, U-N-I dash Würzburg, spelled W-U-E-R-Z-B-U-R-G dot D-E. It should um, pop up when you Google Coptic Magical Papyri. Thank you very much for listening once again and see you next time.